excited to have you with us at Our Father's House. Whether you are watching by live stream, social media, or television, we are so honored to have you. Our prayer is that wherever you are, you will encounter the glory of God like you never have before. Now, let's go into service and see what God has in store for you today. Praise the Lord, everyone. This is Pastor Justin Helton from our Father's House. I just want to say it's an honor to have you joining us today on this podcast on the book of Revelation. Now, this has been a subject we've been talking a lot on Wednesday nights, uh, past month or so on. And uh, we're kind of backtracking here because we just actually finished Revelation chapter 4 last week. Uh, But now we are going to go backtrack a little bit into the introduction and then chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation and see if we can just uh, break these uh, verses down and the message down and so that we can just grow and learn together. Amen. So in going into the book of Revelation, I first want to just open up in a word of prayer and just speak uh, God's wisdom and favor upon this word and blessing upon your life. Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you this day that you've given us to glorify you, to praise you and to lift you up. Father, I pray for everyone that is listening. God, I just speak supernatural uh, blessing upon them. Just as the book of Revelation says, uh, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so, Father, open our understanding, the, the our ears, our hearts to understand, to hear and understand, and to do what you've called us to do. And Father, I just speak a supernatural blessing upon this word. Let us grow together. Father, we just thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go into the book of Revelation, uh, it's really a glimpse into an apostle's devotional life. I like what Matt Petrie said in his book, Making Lightning. He said that uh, reading Revelation is a glimpse into a lightning-hearted disciple's prayer closet. And that's really what you see with John the Beloved, who authored the book of Revelation. Uh, A lot of people call it the book of Revelations, but it's actually one revelation because the major revelation is not necessarily about a future event, but it's more so about who Jesus is. And everything that we should aim our belief system, uh, prophecy, everything of that nature upon is who Jesus is. And so it's called the Revelation of the Apocalypse, which literally means the lifting of the veil or the sun uncovering of something that has been previously hidden. So the book of Revelation is about unveiling, hitting things. I believe God wants to open our heart to the revelation of who Jesus is. It's very possible that John wrote this letter in order to conceal it so that it may not be destroyed, but that the copies could be preserved and given to the churches. So you read a lot in the book of Revelation about things, imagery that is really hard to understand, especially if you're, you know, reading it from an American perspective versus an ancient Jewish perspective. There's a lot of easy to have different beliefs and a lot of misunderstanding, things of that nature. But I do believe the imagery was was portrayed in such a way, number one, God did it that way, but also to conceal what God had given John so that it could leave the Isle of Patmos and get to the churches and that they may be prepared for what was uh, to come in that day and age. And so 
Ecclesiastes 1 and 9 says a very interesting verse because there's different ways to interpret the book of Re Revelation, actually five major interpretive views of the book of Revelation. Before I get that, uh, get to that, Ecclesiastes 1 and 9 says, that which has been is that which shall be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. And so when you get into the book of Revelation, you have to open the perspective of a couple things. Is it things that have historically happened? Is it things that is going to happen in the future, or is it both? Um, because there, because history can repeat itself, just as Ecclesiastes one nine says, there's nothing new under the sun. For example, you had Jezebel in the Book of Kings, in the Book of Revelation, you have the spirit of Jezebel that was attacking uh, attacking one of the churches there in Asia Minor. Uh, you have uh, Jezreel where Jezebel died, and then you read about uh, Mount Megiddo and Jezreel in the Book of Revelation about uh, an army that was destroyed there. Uh, some may have interpreted that with the Roman Empire; others may interpret it as a future defeat to the armies of the Antichrist. And so, in other words. History can and will repeat itself from time to time. And so there are five major interpretive views of the book of Revelation. Number one is the preterist view. It's the belief that a majority of the events predicted in the book has already been fulfilled, mainly fulfilled in the first century, excluding, you know, the uh, second coming of the Lord. And there's in the preterist view, there's different ways to view uh, the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation 20, things of that nature. The second view is the historical view, which teaches the apocalypse was fulfilled first century and has been fulfilled throughout the 1980 years of church history, but it will climax into the, Christ, into the Lord's return. Another view is an allegorical view, which teaches the book is just a, a complete allegory with all the imagery and things. The judgment being poured out is not literal, uh, but it's really a struggle between good and evil. So when you read about uh, armies being destroyed and all this stuff, it's just really about the constant battle between good and evil. The fourth view is the amillennial view, which teaches that the book of Revelation actually uh, reveals seven phases of church history and that there's no literal uh, millennial reign of Christ, but it's figurative to us ruling and reigning with Christ as kings and priests. And then finally, there is the futuristic view that sees uh, chapters 1 through 3 uh, as a direct message from John the Beloved to the seven churches of Asia Minor. But Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 and on forward are futuristic events that have not been fulfilled. Um, and I will be honest with you, that is a view that I've held for all my lifetime, but in recent in the recent year or so, um, I've really struggled with that view. Um, and so, and I'll break that down in, in upcoming podcasts, but I mean, it's it's okay. What you got to do is when you go into Revelation, you have to keep an open mind. First of all, um, you got to ask Holy Spirit, show me the truth, and let me hear these things out. Where I believed a certain way for so long, and I've held a pre-trib rapture view uh, with a futuristic view of the Book of Revelation all my life, but then I began to struggle with that, and I'll talk about that in future podcasts. That doesn't mean that. If you believe differently than me that, or from somebody else that you're condemned to hell and you're a false teacher or anything like that. In fact, the matter is we just got to believe two th We got to believe Jesus died, that he resurrected, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back again. And I think that once we come to the understanding of that, we are all good and on the same page. Now, how people interpret that may be different, but 
I think that is something that all of us can agree on. And so, but I'll get into all that later. And as we go into the book of Revelation, the upcoming podcast, um, from uh, basically probably chapter 5 or 6 on, uh, we're going to teach the book of Revelation from both a, uh, more of a uh, preterist view of a lot of this already being fulfilled and a futuristic view of seeing these things going to be fulfilled, break down why both people or both uh, views, uh, how they see that, and then I want to share with you really where I stand at the time being because I felt like I've known the book of Revelation, could break it down for so long, and then uh, and then with a flip of view and looking at others' perspective, there has been a shift in, the, in, in just seeing things, and I think um, when you're diving into the mysteries of God's Word, you do absolutely have to keep uh, an open mind. So let's get in the word. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond service, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and, communica- and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John, who testified of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the word of the prophecy and heed the things which are written for the time is near. Um, and so, um, but the book of Revelation, uh, it talks about, of course, the revelation of who Jesus is and what things must soon take place. Now, people have interpreted soon to take place, meaning that it was going to come very soon. Others interpret it as um, means that it will happen quickly. Once these events start happening, things will be set in motion very quickly. So that, again, can see the historical view or predator's view of, okay, soon take place literally means this is about to happen. Or you can look at it as, well, once these things start happening, they're going to kick off really fast and things are going to get going pretty quick. But God delivered this vision through an angel to John the Beloved who penned this letter. Uh, the Bible says that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and Hebrews 13 and 2, that we must be sure to try the Spirit and not entertain angel unaware. You can always identify an angel as an evil spirit when it refuses to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And this is how G, uh, John tested to make sure that this vision revelation was from God in line with his word in heaven because he began to test and say, "Is it, what is this? And when this angel, which was a messenger from God, this wasn't a pastor, but a messenger sent from God in the spirit to John, it was the sole purpose of bringing about the revelation of Jesus. And that revelation would not deny who he is. So this was John. He was the only disciple that was not martyred, which is valid because he bore record of God's word. He wrote it down. He spoke it. He gave it as part of the life of Christ, and he could share everything he saw. He was not exempt, but was just part of the journey. Since he was with Christ, his willingness to undergo persecution is proof of who Jesus really is. And so I believe that John, yeah, he suffered. He was, uh, if you study church history, you find out that he was uh, tarred and feather, bold, and, and oil, all this stuff, but he made it, he overcame, and he uh, lived a, a good life, he lived a long life, so he didn't die a martyr, but we believe that God spared him for the purpose of, of documenting and giving out this revelation. The Bible says in verse 3 of Revelation 1 that we are blessed or happy when we read the book of Revelation, hear the words, and keep that word. The word keep there means to guard, observe, reserve, and preserve everything that is written in it. So in other words, we rob ourselves of the blessings of God when we do not read, hear, and keep God's revelation. 
And so it's very important that we are mindful of, of the Word of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says that John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who what? who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. So the first reference could be of God the Father, but we also see this through Jesus Christ. Christ was, is, and is to come. He is right now living, seated at the right hand of the Father. He was, which means He preexisted um, with the Father in heaven, and He is to come, which means He will be, he will be uh, coming and returning back to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, right? And so we have an example of Jesus' pre-existence in Scripture, because that could be confusing, like, well, we don't really know or believe in Jesus until, um, you know, He was uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born uh, of the Virgin Mary, but uh, Jesus did pre-exist. That's why you see in the book uh, in the Old Testament, for example, uh, Him being foreshadowed through the Passover lamb and, and these different things through milk. Melchizedek to Abraham. Uh, the Bible says in Colossians 1, 16-17 that by Jesus all things were made. And so in, because in the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so uh, I believe you can spiritually apply that because if you get with the Word long enough, you'll become what you read. If you want to become like Jesus, get around Jesus. Get in God's presence. Read the Bible. Pray. Things of that nature. Uh, but then also um, we uh, read in Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that God says this, let us make man in our image. He didn't say let me, he said let us. And that that uh, really displays the uh, basically the Son of God in that statement because I don't believe the Father was speaking to angels. I don't believe He was speaking to the four living creatures that you read about in Ezekiel and Revelation. But I believe He is talking to Jesus Christ in His pre-existing form. And so you see that in Scripture. The Bible says that before the throne are seven spirits. The word spirit there uh, comes from the Greek word pneuma, which is the breath of God. Uh, these seven spirits is not a reference to angels or uh, archangels or, or anything of that nature, but it's about the presence of the Spirit of God. I believe the best way to describe this is the sevenfold Spirit of God that you read about in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. And the word says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him of wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. You read about seven spirits there uh, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge of the Lord, and fear of the Lord. And this is all resting upon Jesus. And since this is the manifestation of the of the presence of God, of the Holy Spirit that, that came and rested upon Jesus, I believe that if there is a work or a move of the Holy Spirit, it should function not outside of this nature. So when you begin to test, is this the Holy Spirit or is this not the Holy Spirit? If it causes confusion, if it creates fear of man, if it brings um, a dishonesty, a lack of counsel, um, it 
doesn't display the knowledge of God or the wisdom of God, then you have to question the validity of whether or not this is the Holy Spirit. So that's that's a good way to uh, basically acid acid test to see whether or not this is the Holy Spirit. Um, But here's some more descriptions of Jesus. that you read about in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, you read about that he is the faithful witness. He was faithful to become the living sacrifice for, uh, for us because the word witness there means martyr. Jesus uh, definitely was a martyr, but it also his witness also reveals that he is a prophet, that he was a prophet. Um, he What he spoke did, was fulfilled, didn't come to pass or will come to pass, and he was a martyr. He died and shed his blood, amen, for uh, not just for a religious cause, but that we can be saved and totally healed and delivered. Bible also says that he was the first begotten of the dead, uh, and that he was the first fruits of them that uh, slept in First Corinthians fifteen twenty through twenty three. Uh, so that signifies that just as he resurrected from the grave, that uh, we will also resurrect uh, with him, not just in the spirit, but down the road, there is a future resurrection. His resurrection positioned him to be a high priest uh, for our sins to intercede for us. He is the prince of kings of the earth. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that he is the prince of peace, and also says that all of the governments of the earth belong to Yahweh. And so by being a prince of kings of the earth, you see a reflection of his kingship and his authority. And finally, he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, indicating of Christ's eternal beginning and eternal ending. Awesome stuff. Amen. So, um, very interesting to note that also through the blood of Jesus, he does, he does more than save us from eternal torment in hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? The scripture teaches us, but he also uh, makes us kings and priests unto God the Father. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. The word peculiar there does not mean strange, but it actually means a purchased possession or treasure, so that we may show forth the praises of Him that has called us out of darkness and a marvelous light. I believe the best description of, of a royal priesthood is a kingdom of priests. That that means that just as priests interceded and prayed and stood in the gap for a generation, we have that priesthood, but we don't function in a way of sacrificing animals or something like that, but we function as kings in that priesthood, meaning that we declare things and it shall be done. Job said, decree a thing and it shall be established and your light will shine upon your ways. So I believe this kingdom of priesthood, uh, kingdom of priests is about uh, using that intercession and what God has called us to do uh, in the form of, of kings, of kingship, of declaring things and seeing them come to pass. The Bible also teaches us that those who pierced him will look upon him, the earth will see him, things like that. I believe, um, again, this is twofold, uh, and let me just teach it like this. Um, through the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD, I do believe that people that pierced Christ would be able to see his uh, would be able to see his judgment manifest. Right, and so those guys were through the destruction of the temple and what took place during that day and age. They were the ones that pierced him and the and things that went on. They would be able to see a judgment come upon the land uh, during their lifetime. And then also, I do believe this could pro- prophesy of Christ at a future return. 
that when he comes to plant his kingdom on the earth, that every eye shall see him. When you think of technology, media, social media, and how quick word gets around so much, it's easy to see how so many people could witness the coming of the Lord. And so it's very, uh, the news can spread that spread very fast. Things can happen very quickly and uh, can be known uh, just very quickly. The Bible says in Jude uh, verses 14 and 15, that the whole Jesus comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment and convict the ungodly. Of course, that's a innumerable amount, a figurative amount of saints coming with him. But this is an affirmation that we have that people will be able to see Jesus. And so, um, so it's very, very possible for something of this to happen. Amen. Also, it says in verses I read that he comes with clouds, which is in the third person singular, uh, meaning and a present indicative, which is a present tense reality, not a distant one. So it indicates that he is appearing or he is coming. Uh, the Bible says, Wherefore, in Hebrews chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which has easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. For consider him of such contradiction as sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So we can run this way, uh, this race with patience. We can lay aside every weight that besets us of sin, of burdens of this world, and keep our eyes on Jesus because he is coming <laughs> with a cloud of witnesses, saints that have done gone on and have obtained their glorious crown of victory. We are surrounded by that cloud, meaning that heaven is backing us up. So we are to function on earth as though we are already in heaven, seated in heavenly places. Man, that is awesome that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now let's keep going in Revelation. One. The word says, verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, this did not mean Sunday, that this was on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, or on Sunday when the church would gather together and worship, but this Lord's Day, meaning a, a judgment of some sort. And he said, I heard a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the suffering was not the tribulation period, but the persecution he was facing was on the Isle of Patmos. Interesting to note, the word Patmos means my crushing or my killing. Uh, according to Revelation five, or excuse me, Romans chapter five, verses three through four, tribulation works patience. Patience works proven character, and proven character produces hope. John had hope even while on the Isle of Patmos, facing all this persecution and ridicule because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So I want to encourage you guys that no matter what bad news you face or what you're going through, don't lose hope. Understand that the trials and trouble you're facing that it will. 
work patience. That patience will prove your character. It will strengthen. It will be a testament of your character in Christ, and it will produce a hope, a hope in God's Word and the testimony of Jesus because your eyes are upon Him and not on what you're facing. Amen. Uh, The sufferings, one of my favorite verses of Scripture is the sufferings at the present time cannot be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. So you may be suffering right now. Maybe it's attacks of the enemy. It may be persecution, harassment, whatever it is. Just know it's a setup to not only prove your character, but to produce hope in your life and to get your eyes set affectionately upon Jesus. Amen. John acknowledged he was a partaker or a co-laborer with Christ in the kingdom. The reason is because he had the revelation of who Jesus was, is, and is to come. But he was also equipped and anointed to carry the kingdom of God within him. John began to have the revelation of, I cannot do ministry on my own. And so every Christian, every minister right, uh, of the gospel, listen, listen to me very carefully. Quit trying to do ministry by yourself. Um, do it with Christ. Instead of feeling like you're trying to pull a train called the church, uh, understand that, okay, when I'm praying, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm witnessing to somebody, when I'm doing a priestly, uh, kingdom of priests duty type thing, am I doing it on my own or do I sense Jesus is with me? When you understand you're doing children's ministry, evangelism, whatever it is, when you understand that Jesus is with you, it makes things so, so much easier easier. So I want to encourage uh, encourage you, you guys to be able to co-labor and to work with the Lord Jesus Christ in what you do. Amen. So, uh, and then the Bible says again that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, of course, um, some people may use this as paralleling the catching away that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16-18, where the Bible says that the dead in Christ rose first at the sound of a trumpet, things like that. But I believe this is to for the purpose of illustrating a judgment that was, uh, that was soon coming. Uh, it just indicates a fresh revelation of God coming into the body of Christ and that the church better listen up. In verses 12 through 16 of Revelation 1, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his uh, chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, uh, snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. So uh, John saw this in heaven. Interesting note, he saw these golden lampstands. And of course, that kind of brings you back into the memory of Moses. When the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he patterned those things in the tabernacle after what he saw in heaven. And so um, Moses, when he designed the golden altar, the golden uh, altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the table of shoe bread, the Ark of the Covenant. He began to design those things after what he saw in the throne room of heaven. And so John is beginning to get a picture of exactly what Moses saw with the uh, with the golden lampstand, but each candlestick represented the seven churches. 
of Asia Minor. According to Perry Stone in his commentary, very interesting note, there were more than a thousand cities in Asia Minor, but the seven addressed in Revelation 2 and 3 are the largest, most influential pagan cities in Asia Minor. Why is that? Because God has called the church to be a light in the most darkened places of the world. And so you right now may feel like you're in a place where you're in a business um, or in a job that uh, maybe there's not a lot of people saved in it. Maybe uh, in the city or area that you live in, the neighborhood, there's not a lot of people that go to church or, or look at Christ in a holy fashion, uh, you know, maybe even demean him or mock him or whatever. You know, when you begin to um, look at that, you need to understand, no, God, it's not about you praying God to take you out of the neighborhood or take you out of the job. I think that is a wrong mindset to have. It goes back to an escapist mindset uh, a lot of times we got to quit looking at that and look and say listen this is the harvest field god's called me here it may be just for a season it may just be for a little bit but god's called me here in this moment to be a light shining on a hill that cannot be hidden so be the light of christ wherever you are Amen. And so John received a fresh revelation of Jesus who was walking in the middle of those uh, candlesticks, middle of, those, of that lampstand. And his, here's what he looked like. He was clothed in a robe with a golden sash across his chest. And interesting note that on the Day of Atonement, when the priest would go in to make a sacrifice to intercede and fast on behalf of the nation, that he was clothed in, and he wore only linen garments. And of course, the linen, the white, always represents purity or holiness. It represents the righteousness of God when you see white in Scripture. But a king would wear a golden sash, indicating that he was transitioning from a priest to a king. If anything else, he was showing that he was the head of the king, kingdom of priests that we, as the sons and daughters of, of God, are a part of. His head and his hairs were white like wool and snow. According to Proverbs 16 and 31, a white head is a crown of glory when it's found in the way of righteousness. So if you're gray-headed today, be encouraged. <laughs> be, be encouraged if you get a couple white hairs pop up or something because it just might be an indication that God's crowning you with glory. So be encouraged. No, uh, but anyway, when Jesus is seen in this, he's seen with a, it is signifying of crown of glory upon him. In uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, the Bible says, though our sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be white as, as snow. So Jesus is crowned with righteousness, paving the way for our righteousness. Interesting to note in, in context with the scripture, very interesting. If you've ever heard in the in the uh, Torah and the tabernacle and things, you may have heard about the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. When a priest, they would actually make a sacrifice of one goat um, for the nation or for the people's sins, things of that nature. But then they would have a scapegoat. What the priest would do is that he would pray the sins of the nation into that goat, and they would send that goat off into the wilderness. When that goat died, they actually hung a scarlet thread in, in the window sill, I believe, of maybe a home or the tabernacle or one. But anyway, when they would... Uh, when they would uh, they would believe that the scapegoat had died and the sins had been carried away as far as the east is from the west, uh, carried away from the children of Israel when that scarlet thread turned white. Uh, so they believed there was a miraculous transformation when their sins were carried from them. Perfect picture of who Jesus is. Though our sins be many, he can cast our sins away, uh, drive them as far as the east is from the west because of the sacrifice that he paid on the cross 
for us. The Bible says his eyes were a flame of fire. Daniel chapter 10 verse 6, the Bible says his body was like beryl and his face is the appearance of lightning. His eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and feet like a color to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So Daniel also sees Jesus with eyes of flame of fire. Isn't it amazing that Daniel saw Jesus the way that John saw Jesus in the scripture? You've got to remember the last time those last memories that John had of Jesus was dying on a cross, and then he did see him, you know, in resurrected form. Um, I believe it was 40 days after his resurrection. But anyway, Daniel saw this Jesus in this glorified state, and now he had returned to that glory to his pre-existing form. But now he's gone forth in the power of his resurrection. But I believe these eyes of flame of fire uh, is a representation even of the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God, which we. Had already talked about as the seven spirits of seven spirits of God, or better yet, the sevenfold spirit of God. It in, and it also indicates a judgment, uh, a God who sees all things and knows all things. His eyes burn for us, right? And uh, his eyes can burn in judgment, fiery judgment. But I believe his eyes burn for us as the church, as the bride of Christ. Amen. The fourth part was that his feet was like polished brass. If you study um, in the tabernacle of Moses, you'll find out that brass always represents humanity. Silver represents uh, redemption and gold represents deity. And so because of the humanity of Jesus, all things have been put under his feet. Ain't that awesome? Uh, so all things have been put under under the feet of Jesus. And uh, also, if you were looking down upon the tabernacle of Moses from heaven, you, the brazen altar would actually be at the feet of Jesus because it, actually the way the furniture is laid out, it's laid out in the form of a cross. And so the, bra the uh, brazen altar would be at the feet of Jesus because the entryway into salvation is, is kneeling at the feet of Jesus. It's that altar, it's that sacrificing of humanity to walk in victory, redemption, and hope in Jesus. Amen. Awesome stuff. Uh, his voice was the sound of many waters and a two-edged sword out of his mouth. We see this in, Reve in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, and Revelation 14, 1 through 2. Uh, we also see this in Revelation 19, 6, when there was a multitude praising God in heaven as the sound of many waters. So the voice of Christ resounded the praises of his people. So you can see a, a booming backing of God's word because of the voice of praise and worship going on in heaven. A two-edged sword proceeded out of his mouth. The word two-edged literally means two mouths. It means when you speak what God speaks, it's the most powerful weapon that you could possess. It tears down, his word tears down strongholds of the enemy. And his right hand, he had seven stars, which represents the angels of those churches. Now, that doesn't mean literal angels, but actually means the pastors over those churches, because John was an apostle over these seven churches in Asia Minor, but there was actually um, pastors, and Jesus is seen as holding these pastors in his right hand. If you're struggling as a pastor and minister, know if you are a firm in the hand of Christ, everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to work out, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And finally, his appearance is shining in his strength. 
In Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, Christ's face was as the appearance of lightning, signifying that he was bearing judgment to bring redemption to us. Also, Christ beheld, according to Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he beheld Satan as the lightning that fell from heaven. In other words, Christ's appearance indicated the fall of Satan in his kingdom. So in other words, the enemy that has authority in your life is because you give him room. If Jesus Christ died and resurrected, he did that to give us the authority, the keys to the kingdom, that what we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose upon earth is loosed in heaven. I like this version. What we forbid on earth is has already been forbidden in heaven. What we've loosed upon earth has already been, uh, or excuse me, released upon earth has already been released in heaven. And so we have the backing of heaven with that authority and declaration. So use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, verse, Revelation 1 verses 17 through 20 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. Notice that do not be afraid. That is the most often repeated command in Scripture is to not be afraid. Do not fear. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not fear. So I want to encourage you today that this is obedience to God. Do not be afraid. No matter what you're facing today, uh, be courageous and know who you are in Christ. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell. Therefore, write these things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven churches which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So after seeing Jesus, John fell at his feet as if he were dead. Kind of similar to the way uh, in Solomon's temple, the ministers could not stand because of the glory of God, according to 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And so uh, Jesus began, when he manifested his glory to John, John about couldn't stand it. I think we need a fresh revelation and manifestation of the glory of Jesus. If we want awakening in the nation, in our region, in our churches, homes, families, and lives, then we've got to get back to the perspective of who Jesus is. He's, again, the first and the last, um, the, which is referenced to Alpha and Omega as eternal beginning and ending, but also he was called the greatest because he served the most, Matthew 20, 26-28. He said the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves the most. It's not about being chief or having a title, but it's about grabbing the towel. It's about serving to the best of your ability. So I encourage us all to serve to a better capacity. He was... He was alive. He was once dead, but now he's alive. It's a comfort to know Jesus is alive and well. He punished. He took upon himself a death uh, that he should not have, a debt that he didn't have a responsibility to pay. But he did that, and he took the keys of death and hell, uh, meaning that when he died, he didn't go straight to heaven, but he actually went to the heart of the earth, uh, which was located in what was paradise that you read about in the book of Luke when Jesus is talking about the Lazarus and the rich man. The Bible says angels carry Lazarus into Abraham's bosom, which was paradise. That's a Jewish term for the heart of the earth. And then the rich man died and was buried. He went to hell. And from hell, he actually seen Lazarus. The reason why, and some of you guys may have heard me talk about this several times, but the reason why... 
people died and did not go immediately to heaven uh, before Jesus showed up on the scene, their spirits didn't go, was because the sin of Lucifer was in heaven. And it took the blood of Jesus to purge that sin out. And now we can go to heaven and engage in the presence and the glory of God. And so that's why in 1 Peter 3, 19, the Bible says that Jesus, after he died, he went and preached to the spirits that were in prison because he gave people, I believe he gave uh, people in paradise an opportunity gave people in the heart of the earth an opportunity hey i am the one i am uh, abraham i am the ram in the bush noah i was the rainbow in the sky uh, you know, Abraham, I was Melchizedek, Isaiah, I was the one you saw that was wounded for your transgression and bruised for your iniquity, amen, and so that revelation of Jesus shook hell to its core and he took the keys of death and hell, that's why the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 through 53, that at his resurrection others also were resurrected at his uh, at his resurrection that's why, again, it says that he was the first fruits of them that slept, right Awesome stuff. And uh, and finally, he is the amen. The word amen there means verily or truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 and 6. And the Bible says in John 8, 32, that the truth makes us free. So he's calling himself the amen because when you have a revelation of who Jesus is the truth, it will absolutely uh, cause you to walk on the path of deliverance. Amen. And uh, and so we see in Scripture that John introduces himself, or excuse me, Jesus introduces himself to each of these seven churches that we're about to read, uh, you know, in chapters 2 and 3. He introduces himself differently. A lot of the way he introduces himself is what we've already uh, read in Revelation 1, except for the church of Philadelphia, which was a church that Jesus commended and never rebuked, because he introduces himself to the church of Philadelphia as the one that has the key of David. But anyway, but you see a majority of him of his description of self being released to the seven churches. See, I think that we have such a division in the church and we have different beliefs. I think if we would just, instead of being divided, hear each other out, maybe somebody has a different revelation of Jesus than us. And we need to we need to listen. Now, if it conflicts with the Word of God, then you and you've tested the Spirit, tried it out, then it's not going to work, right? Uh, there is false doctrine and teaching in the world, but some people may have an understanding or a revelation of Jesus that we don't. So that's why the the Bible says, the Word of God says, uh, "Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath." So I want to encourage you guys uh, to do that. So and then finally, John was to record what he had seen the things which are and the things which shall be. Uh, the things they seen was right there in Revelation 1. The things which are, were happening right then was chapters 2 and 3 with the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the things which shall be was Revelation chapters 4 through 22. Amen. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this podcast, uh, just going through an introduction to as well as the book of Revelation. We'll go deeper into some introduction in chapter 4, verse 1, as far as the timetable when the book of Revelation was written. Kind of uh, try to slice that up and, and look into that a little bit. Uh, but we'll go in our next podcast in chapters 2 and 3. That'll bro be broke down more likely in three different podcasts. So tune in, and we hope you enjoy that. Amen. Hope you got something out of this today. May God bless you until we see you or uh, be in service with you. Uh, may God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.